Friends, I'm going to invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to turn to God's word once again. We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John, picking up today in John chapter 14, continuing with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room in what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the joy and privilege of being gathered together as brothers and sisters in your presence, Lord, here in your church to worship you. God, you are so good to us. You are so faithful. You are a God of amazing grace. And uh, we give you all the honor, glory, and praise. Holy Spirit, as we turn our hearts now to the word, we just pray that you would illuminate these truths for us. We pray that you would help me to communicate them clearly and that all of us would have open, open hearts, open eyes, open spirits to receive what you have to share with us. Today we're going to look at these great words you've given us, words of joy and hope and comfort and assurance. And I pray, God, that as we study your word, we might be greatly encouraged and cheered in our knowledge of who you are and the promises you've made to us. So we commit this time to you, praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week uh, had, a, had a really interesting and special time. Uh, myself and my daughter Addie on Tuesday flew out to California for the funeral service of my grandmother. Uh, I'll, sh- I'll share more about that with you later this morning. But uh, my grandmother passed away a couple weeks ago, 98 years old. She was the last of my grandparents. Uh, we had a really special time out there with our family. But uh, I, had a, I had the great privilege of bringing my daughter, Addie, out with, out with me. Uh, Addie had had a special relationship with my grandma over the years, her great-grandma. While she never had the chance to get to know her personally in this world, uh, Addie had been a pen pal with my grandma over the years, uh, writing her letters, sending her cards. And so uh, it was a real joy to be able to bring Addie out and, and share in that special time with our family. Well, as Addie was looking forward to going out to Northern California, uh, knowing that we were going to be able to, you know, see some of the the famous sites and landmarks out there, uh, she became really excited thinking about the various things that she wanted to see and do while we were there. And uh, one of the things that she was looking forward to seeing was that iconic landmark that stretches across San Francisco Bay, the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, I was really excited because I've been out there many times, but I wanted the, the joy as a parent of sharing in those experiences with my daughter. And so, you know, the whole way out to California on our flight, we were talking about, you know, what we were going to see and what it was going to be like. And she was getting more and more excited. And, uh, and so we landed in San Francisco. We got in our rental car. We started heading through downtown San Francisco towards the Golden Great Gate Bridge that takes you north into the Napa Valley wine country, which is where my grandmother lived. And, and we started heading that direction, and pretty soon we began to realize that the infamous San Francisco fog had rolled in throughout the bay. If you know anything about San Francisco, it is not at all unusual for the fog to roll in off of the Pacific Ocean, and it gets funneled right through that channel where the Golden Gate Bridge stretches across the bay. And that fog can literally surround and engulf the entire city of San Francisco. Well, we started approaching the famous Golden Gate Bridge, and quickly it became apparent that Addie wasn't going to see much, if anything, of the Golden Gate Bridge. 
Uh, in fact, it was almost like a whiteout here in Minnesota. I mean, you could see maybe 100 yards ahead of you, but I mean, the whole thing was engulfed in fog. You couldn't see the ocean. You couldn't see the city around us. I mean, we were in the fog. And I felt so bad for Addie because, you know, here was this iconic landmark that we were so excited to see. I wanted her to have this special experience, and, and it was unfortunately uh, not not going to happen on that trip. You know, I'm sure many of you this morning can relate to that kind of an experience. The experience of looking forward to something with great joy and anticipation. The experience of, uh, of great hopefulness, waiting for something that you've been looking forward to arrive. Maybe it's the, the experience of the vacation of a lifetime that you were looking forward to, and then you get to your destination and it rains the entire week. And you experience that disappointment of the gloom and the fog that falls over your plans and your hopes and your dreams. You know, maybe some of you have experienced that in your personal life. Maybe in the relationship that never materialized the way you were hoping for. Or maybe it was in the reality of the child that was never conceived, that you so wanted. Maybe it was the experience of your twilight years being taken away from you far too early when your spouse passed away and not having those memories to share together. You know, friends, sometimes it can seem as if the joys of life and even our hopes and dreams become engulfed in a fog of disappointment and discouragement and despair. And you know, as I look at our passage this morning, I believe Jesus' disciples can certainly relate to that reality. The reality of hopes and dreams being engulfed in a fog of disappointment, discouragement, confusion. You see, Jesus has just told them that he is going to be leaving them. He's just told them that he is going to be betrayed by one of them. He's just conveyed that he is going to lose his very life. And you can just imagine the disciples so full of joy, so full of hope, so full of optimism, having walked and lived and ministered with Jesus for three years, having heard this greatest of all teachers, having seen the many miracles take place, having heard Jesus' declarations of being the great I am, having just a few days earlier been escorted into Jerusalem by throngs of people waving palm branches, believing Jesus was the coming Messiah, the promised king, the one who would restore the throne of David in Jerusalem. And now Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going away from you. And all of the disciples' hopes and dreams were now suddenly engulfed in this fog of confusion and dismay and despair. Friends, where can we turn in times like these? Where can we turn with our confusion and hurts when life doesn't turn out the way we had hoped? Well, today in our passage, we're going to find Jesus sharing with his disciples sharing with us some of his greatest truths for troubled hearts. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to declare some great promises, promises of hope, promises of assurance, promises of security, 
promises about himself and what he has planned for us as his people. The greatest of which is the promise of our eternal life, our eternal home in heaven. Jesus is going to show us this morning the way to heaven, the way to heaven which can give us great cause for encouragement and hope, even in the midst of the fog of confusion and despair in our lives. We're in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 today. If you recall, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. They've just celebrated the Last Supper. He's washed his disciples' feet. He's encouraged them to love one another as he has loved them. And now he's going to continue on in what is known as his farewell discourse, the final teachings of his ministry among his disciples before his crucifixion, which was going to take place in less than 24 hours. Here in John chapter 14, 1 through 6, Jesus goes on and he conveys the following. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some of the greatest words ever spoken in the history of the world. Some of the greatest words of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, here in John 14, 1 through 6. And at the heart of these terrific words is Jesus' assurance, his promise, his promise, his declaration of the way to heaven. What a great hope that we have here, friends. In revealing the way to heaven to us here in this passage, Jesus reveals to us, first of all, a message of comfort. What great comfort we can take from the words of our Savior here. Our passage opens this morning with this message of comfort to his disciples. But, but this wasn't a, a sentimental type of comfort. This wasn't a message like your, your mom when you scrape your knee as a kid and she comes around you with her arms around you and says, oh, it's going to be okay. It wasn't a sentimental type of comfort, but rather the kind of comfort that fuels courage and boldness and conviction. See, Jesus begins his teaching here with an essential command. An essential command for all of his followers throughout the ages. It's found right at the outset of verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Friends, that's not a suggestion. That's a command from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. No matter your circumstances, no matter your confusion, no matter your hurts and your pains, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then we discover as we read on that this is a command that is rooted in two things. It's a command rooted in a person and a promise. It's a command rooted in a person and a promise. The person is Jesus himself. 
Jesus goes on in verse 1 in two imperative declarations in the Greek. He says to his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. Those as well are commands. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus, over the course of his ministry, and we've seen this throughout our series, has repeatedly declared that he and the Father are one. Jesus has told his disciples, if you've seen God, you've seen If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. He's repeatedly identified himself as the sovereign God of the universe. And so here Jesus roots this promise, this command, let not your hearts be troubled. He roots this command in himself, in his person, as being the sovereign God of the universe. Over my 20 years of ministry, one of the things that I've often realized when people have come to me sharing their hurts, sharing their disappointments, sharing their confusion in life, is that oftentimes the source of our discouragement is really our failure to live in light of the sovereignty of God. We get discouraged by the circumstances of our lives because we take our eyes off of God and the reality of who he is as the sovereign orchestrator of all things. The one who rules and reigns and who is in control. The one for which there is no maverick molecule anywhere in the universe. The God of whom history is really his story. And we lose sight of that. We forget God's sovereignty. And we forget that the Bible calls Jesus, our sovereign God, the Prince of Peace. How is Jesus the Prince of Peace? He's the Prince of Peace because he is the one who holds the universe in his hands. He is the one who is sovereign over it all. And when you look to this Jesus, friends, when you look to this sovereign God, you will be at great peace. This is why Jesus could say, let not your hearts be troubled, because he is sovereign. But he doesn't just root that command in his person. He secondly roots that command in a promise. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Here Jesus gives us the promise of an eternal home in heaven. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I am sovereign. And secondly, because I've got a place that I'm going to prepare for you, an eternal home in heaven. This world is not the be-all, end-all, friends. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, we have the hope of eternity. I mentioned to you how my daughter and I were out at my grandmother's funeral this week. My grandmother, Jane Carlson, she was a a special lady, lived to be 98 years old, and she was really the heartbeat of our family. Our our, our Carlson family is a unique family, a family full of pastors. 
My grandpa was a pastor for 50 plus years. Started Calvary Baptist Church here in Roseville. Served at Grace Church in Edina, which is now Grace Church of Eden Prairie. Served at three different churches out in California, Southern California, Northern California. And all along, his faithful partner in ministry was my grandma. They raised two sons who both became pastors. One of them, my father. Really special to be a part of this family and to celebrate my grandma's life. And as many of you know, those of you who have lost loved ones, it's, it's always hard to say goodbye to the ones we love. We, we're going to miss them, and we're certainly going to miss my grandma. But I'll tell you something, our celebration for her was truly a time of joy, a special time of rejoicing as a family. Because we know that our separation from my grandma is only temporary. We know that because of Jesus and what he had done for her and her trust in him, that she is now at home with the Lord. That the promises Jesus makes to us here in verses 2 through 3, she is now experiencing. At my grandmother's funeral service, we sang that great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. As we were singing that hymn, I was struck by one verse in particular that really reflects Christ's promises here in verses 2 through 3. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hands hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Friends, what a hope we have in Jesus. He promises us his presence in the midst of all of our circumstances. The Prince of Peace, our sovereign God. And he's promised us the hope of a home in glory. Interestingly, this hope that Jesus promises us here in verses 2 through 3 is one that his disciples wouldn't have been unfamiliar with. For his promises here in verses 2 through 3, Jesus was using a metaphor right out of their own culture. A metaphor that would become one of the most prominent images of the church's relationship to Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. What was that metaphor? It was the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ. Friends, think about how many times throughout the New Testament we hear that word, those metaphors. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom coming for his bride. The great wedding celebration that we have to look forward to. Friends, why did the disciples so often use those metaphors? Those metaphors came directly from Jesus' promise here in verses 2 through 3. That he goes to prepare a place for us. You see, to understand what Jesus is explaining to us here in this promise, we need to know a little bit about the way ancient Hebrew weddings worked. You see, in the ancient Hebrew culture, 
How did weddings happen? Well, number one, they started with a betrothal covenant between two families. Two families would come together and they would make a plan, a covenant for their son and their daughter to be married one day. And they would make this covenant years in advance of the wedding sometimes. And they would seal this covenant by sipping a glass of wine together, the wine representing a blood oath, a blood covenant between those two families. A promise sealed with representation of blood. And it's very interesting, friends, when we look at Ephesians. The Apostle Paul tells us in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Friends, our groom chose us before the foundation of the world. He made a covenant with us before he even created anything. He covenanted with us, sealing that covenant by his blood shed on the cross. His blood, which was just represented in the cup of memorial that he told his disciples to drink at communion, at the Lord's Supper, sealing that covenant made before the foundation of the world. After the betrothal covenant in an ancient Hebrew wedding, the groom would then go and prepare a room for his bride at his father's house. The covenant would be made and the groom would go to his father's house and he would build a room onto his father's house where he and his bride would one day live. In the ancient Israelite culture, families lived together in dwelling places with multiple rooms. And so when a son would get married, he would build a room onto his father's house where he and his bride would one day live and raise their children. And so when Jesus says in verses 2 through 3, I'm going to my father's house and at my father's house there are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. He is saying to his bride, the church, I'm the groom going to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And interestingly, in ancient Hebrew culture, it was only the father who could tell the son when the room was ready for his bride. The son couldn't go and get his bride until the father said the room was ready. And what did Jesus tell his disciples when they asked when his return would come? Jesus says, only my father in heaven knows. And so the groom goes to prepare a place. And while the groom is preparing for his bride, the bride prepares herself for her husband. Some of you women who here who are married know what it is to get yourself ready for that day that you're so looking forward to. You go and you make all the wedding preparations and you, you buy that special dress and you make plans to have your hair done and your makeup done and, and you're readying yourself, you're preparing yourself for the arrival of your groom. And in the same way, God calls us to prepare ourselves for the arrival of our groom, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3, 2-3, through 3, the Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What is John saying here? John is saying we need to live in the light of who we are, the bride of Christ. 
and our groom is coming again. And so we want to live in light of who we will be as the, as the bride of the groom. We need to be readying ourselves. We need to be purifying ourselves, living in light of that great hope that we have, that one day we will be wedded to our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And then number four, the great promise that the groom is coming for his bride. When the father declares that the room is ready, he sends his son to go and get the bride. And so the groom goes to the bride's family with all of his friends, and they announce their arrival with the blast of a loud trumpet. And when the bride and her family hear the trumpet call, they know the groom has arrived, and they come out to meet the groom. And in the very same way, Jesus promises that he is coming again for his people. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away, that you may not grieve as others who do, have, do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, Jesus is coming again for his people. I I believe what Paul's describing here is what is known as the rapture. When Christ will come and take the church out of this world before the period of tribulation. Others refer to believe this just is simply a reference to the second coming. Either way, the promise is true. Jesus is coming again for his bride. He's coming again, friends. And I believe that second coming of Jesus could happen any moment. I believe Jesus is coming very soon. You see what's taking place on the news each day. Jesus is coming back. Are we preparing ourselves for the arrival of our groom? Fifthly, in a Hebrew wedding, you had the great celebration. And we're promised a great wedding feast with our Savior one day, friends. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, we read John's vision. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, isn't this awesome? Just as an ancient Hebrew bride and groom looked forward to that great day, Jesus has promised us, his bride, the church, he's gone to prepare a place for us. He is coming again. And one day we will be united in marriage to him for all of eternity and celebrate with our family throughout the ages and from around the world. 
And these are all promises that are true. Friends, if God was faithful about fulfilling all the promises related to Jesus' first coming, you better believe he's going to be faithful in keeping all of the promises about his second coming. So Jesus here offers his disciples and us these amazing words of comfort. But then next, Jesus shares a message of clarity. Jesus shares a message of clarity in verses 5 through 6. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. This past Tuesday in our staff meeting, we had an interesting conversation about an article that our executive director of ministries, Dick Crombie, brought to us. It was an article highlighting a recent American Worldview Survey, the 2020 American Worldview Survey. It was conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University and George Barna. This survey taken last year questioned Christians around the nation. And the results of this survey were troubling, to say the least. The the heart of this survey revealed that relativism, the idea that there is no absolute truth, Relativism reigns in our culture today. And not just in our culture, but sadly, increasingly in the evangelical church. The survey reported that 30% of evangelical Christians today agree that Jesus was just a great teacher, not God. 41% of evangelicals said that a person can earn their way to heaven through good deeds. 58% of evangelicals believe there is no such thing as absolute moral truth. 59% of evangelicals said the Bible is not the authoritative word of God. 68% of evangelicals said that having faith matters more than which faith you have. Friends, this is tragic. There is a crisis in the American church today. But you know something? We shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus said that his path is the narrow way. And I'll tell you something, friends. That path is getting narrower every day. How did this happen? How did we get to this place of such moral confusion and chaos in our culture and in our churches? Friends, I'll tell you something. It happens the same way it's happened throughout history. Cultures take their eyes off of God and his truth. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 32, tells us how this takes place. He says in verse 18, people suppress the truth. In verse 23, he says they exchange the worship of God for idols. All friends, we certainly have our idols here in America, don't we? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They abandoned natural relations, sexual relations for unnatural ones. Verse 28, they did not retain the knowledge of God. Verse 32, they ignore God's laws and even encourage rebellion against them. Friends, does this sound a lot like our culture or what? And four times here in these verses, the Apostle Paul says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. What does that mean? God says, you're going to sleep in the bed you made. 
God says, if you're going to continue in your rebellion, continue turning your back against me, then I'm going to let you go the way of your rebellion. And friends, we need to recognize and understand that this is the root of our culture's confusion and chaos today. Where does Antifa come from? Where does Black Lives Matter come from? And critical race theory and white nationalism and the rioting and looting we see throughout our country today. Why do we have occupied zones in major U.S. cities? Why do we see increasingly totalitarian, authoritarian governments? Friends, all of this is simply symptomatic of the poison pill of relativism. You see, when relativism becomes the dominant philosophy in a, in a culture, when there is no longer any moral compass, all you have left is the quest for power. Those who impose their will on others by whatever means necessary ultimately rule the day. See, friends, there's no possibility of rational discourse when two parties can no longer agree on the basic reality of objective truth, of absolute truth. And this is how societies descend into chaos. The French theologian Henri de Lubac, at the height of the totalitarianism and authoritarianism of communism and fascism in World War II, he said, it is not true, as is sometimes said, that man cannot organize the world without God. What is true is that without God, he can only organize it against man. Friends, this is why Jesus' words here in verses 5 through 6 are so vitally important. Because Jesus is the remedy to our culture's chaos and confusion. For a world that is lost, Jesus says, I am the way. For a world that is floundering, Jesus says, I am the truth. For a world that is in decay, Jesus says, I am the life. Friends, our world needs Jesus. And the world needs Christians who will unashamedly declare that he and he alone is the remedy for all that ails us. We need to give the world Jesus, friends. So Jesus here has spoken these words of comfort and clarity. But lastly, Jesus now shares that these words are a message of consequence. In verse 6, the second half, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, no more consequential words have ever been spoken. This past February, my son Caleb and I had the chance to go to Washington, D.C. together. While we were there, we had the opportunity to visit the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. One of the displays that particularly caught my attention that day had a large banner over it with the words, Houston, we have a problem. It was a display memorializing the famous flight of Apollo 13. Some of you might remember that incredible day in April 1970 when TV screens, the news flashed 
across TV screens around the world that three American astronauts were 200,000 miles from planet Earth and there had been an explosion on Apollo 13, an explosion that had knocked out their electrical system, their directional guidance system, their life support system, and oxygen was leaking into outer space. And those three astronauts had only four hours of oxygen, four hours left to live. NASA's Houston Command Headquarters began working frantically trying to figure out a way that those three astronauts could be saved. One hour ticked by. Two hours ticked by. Some historians have said that this was one of the rare occasions in all of history when the whole world stopped to pray identifying with the desperate plight of those three American astronauts as they headed off course in the darkest space without hope. Three hours ticked by. Three hours and 40 minutes ticked by. And with only 20 minutes of oxygen left, NASA's Houston Command Headquarters radioed up to Apollo 13. We have found a way, and it's the only possible way for you to be saved. You need to go through the door to the lunar lander and you need to plug into its life support system and its directional guidance system and you need to use its energy to propel yourselves around the moon back to earth. There is no other way for you to be saved. Friends, we all know what those three astronauts chose to do that day. With great joy, they received the news from NASA that there was a way. And they went through that door. And they plugged into a new life support system, a new directional guidance system, a new source of energy. And they were propelled around the moon back to Earth. And they were saved. Friends, I'm going to tell you, my heart breaks today. My heart breaks for a world that is tumbling out of control, lost without hope, headed to an eternity separated from God, a Christless eternity. And all the while, Heaven's Command Headquarters has sent a revelation to this world that there is a way. There is a way to be saved, a way to experience life, a way to experience fullness of life here and now and life everlasting. But there's only one way to be saved. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There's only one way, friends. There's only one door that leads to life. Who among us here this morning, who of you watching online today would be so foolish to turn your back on the door that leads to life? Jesus promises us that when we enter through his door, we will know the hope that comes from a personal relationship with him promise of forgiveness, the joy of new life, the security of an eternal home in heaven. Friends, what will you choose? I pray you choose Jesus. 
And that you too might know the blessing of knowing with certainty the way to heaven. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, friends. We have a home in heaven because of his amazing grace and his faithful love. Don't miss out. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these incredible promises that we see here in your word this morning. We thank you that because of Jesus, we can know the way. We can know the truth. We can know the life. We can know what it is to live in a personal relationship with our creator God, forgiven of our sins, walking the path of life to the full, and knowing the assurance of an eternal home in heaven awaits us when we take our final breaths in this world. Jesus, we just thank you for these incredible promises. And I pray that everybody here this morning might know the reality of these promises in their own lives. And if not, that they might even today choose to enter through that door, the door that leads to life, the door that leads to salvation, so that they too might know that they have a home in heaven. In your great name we pray, amen. You
Heaven is our home, friends, because of Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with these great words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 14 through 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Friends, go out this week and be the aroma of Christ to a world that desperately needs to know the hope that's found in Jesus. God bless you. Amen. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.